My name is Bond. James Bond. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Professionalism at its finest. True Crime Uncensored, America's premier true crime podcast that covers more than true crime. We cover fiction. <laughs> we don't care. Yeah, we'll turn your mic on later. No, we don't need to do that. I am Burl Bear. That's Mark Boyer, our fact checker. Great thing about living in Los Angeles is you learn important things. Yeah, what is that? What is the great thing about living in Los Angeles? I would love to know that. You learn that it's not who you know that counts, but where you're seated. <laughs> Todd Goldberg wrote that line. That's one of the reasons I love Todd Goldberg. Also, he's my nephew, and we give nepotism a bad name. Hiya, Todd. Hey. Hey. Hey there, hi there. We had uh, your brother Leon last week. I'm sorry about that. I hope you saw our listeners. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. It actually was a surprisingly a good show. I didn't even know you had a brother named Leon. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, I don't even remember writing that line. I had to go look at uh, all my books just now. It's one of your older books because it was. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's a great line. It's not who you know, it's where you're seated. I'm very proud that uh, the past me was so smart. I wish I had that skill set. Yeah, it's uh, one of those. I mean, when I was reading, uh, I think it's your first book. Was your first book Living Dead Girl? Uh, No, that was my second book. Fake Liar Cheat was my first book. Oh, that's right. They kind of an autobiography. (laughs) The Living Dead Girl, there's something about that book that reminds me of something. But I don't know what it is. I think it's because you're the living dead, girl. Does it remind you? Would you read that book? Does it remind you of anything? It reminds me of the fact that inexplicably, no one in our family can write about uh, anything fresh and new. I think you're right. Dedicated to one setting. Yep, I think it's rather peculiar. I think you and uh, and I and your brother. All wrote books that came out about the same time that referenced Loon Lake in it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. At some point, when the uh, when the great um, when the great biographies of our family are written, <laughs> they're going to need a, a good psychologist to figure out what terrible, terrible thing happened to the three of us. Yes, <laughs> at Loon Lake by Joe Biddle. <laughs> uh, no, that about horrible things happening. You are well known, <laughs> or despised, or admired as the case may be, for uh, being a likable, jolly, sociable fellow, well-met. And you know, when you read your books, some of that stuff's pretty damn sick, Todd. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the funny thing is, I was just writing a piece um, for uh, Crime Read, a very good uh, website, because they basically wanted to know, like, what what made me this way? Yeah. And, um, what traumatic events? Yeah, and I was reminded of the fact that, you know, over the course of my entire life, my proximity to really terrible crimes has been really close. And then I was remembering, like, all these crazy murders and abductions and things that happened. And I was talking to uh, Lee and to my sisters, Karen and Linda, and um, I was reminded of something that I had forgotten about because it happened when I was one years old, oh, yeah. which was that um, 
at our beach house in Capitola, our next-door neighbors were murdered by a serial killer. Oh, wonderful. That's, uh, there's a book there somewhere. <laughs> well, there's, it turns out, like, Lee and Karen couldn't remember the exact address nor the exact date. And so I went and I did the research, and there was, like, seven different serial killers working in the Santa Cruz-Capitola <laughs> region from 1969 to 1974. Was it a competition? Yeah, it, well, like, there was Ed Kemper. There was a bunch, like, just a bunch of crazy dudes killing hippies and socialites, and we just got lucky. You know, yeah. we weren't there that weekend. <laughs> Man, I should have been writing true crime then. <laughs> think of think of how successful you could have been. Yeah, man, <laughs> I could have started or started young. Yes, what a benefit! But then you wouldn't have this show. See, yeah, you're right about that. You know, people still uh, attack true crime writers and say, "How dare you make money off the pain and suffering of other people?" I've yet to see them say that to newspapers or magazines. Yeah, well. That, that's you know, this, during the course of the pandemic, I've watched so many of those, you know, eight-part Netflix documentaries about horrible murders, and uh, I don't feel guilty at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's because you didn't do them. Right. <laughs> that's uh, a good point. Yeah. I, I am thinking of doing an eight-part Netflix documentary where I find out what really happened to Poncho and Lefty. I feel like that's, that's the one that's true the crime. One, yeah. <laughs> we do need to find that out. <laughs> Something happened bad back there. Oh, right? yeah. So we're going to figure it out. <laughs> uh, a little background on, on Todd. He is, I, I find your bio fascinating. It begins, a Jewish author. Is that a put down or a praise? Oh. Excuse me. <clears throat> He's in entertainment. Oh, he's in the That's a requirement. That's a requirement. Yeah. Right. You graduated from Palm Springs High School in 1989, attended California State University, Northridge, graduated with a master's. <laughs> yes, master. In fine arts degree in creative writing, blah, blah. Uh, you were profoundly dyslexic. How does right. someone who's profoundly dyslexic and told that you would probably never read or write Above a fourth grade level, they may have been familiar. right, but I mean, <laughs> there are those on on Goodreads who would argue that <laughs> they were correct. Yes, I know. <clears throat> You're talking to someone who is severely dyslexic, Earl. No, I'm not. You are. Well, no, we are, because oh. that would be me. That's you. Uh, it took me three months to learn how to draw a five correctly. Six months to learn how to ride a bicycle, because that always pedal backwards and hit the brakes. Right, right. Do you do that um, stuff too, Todd? Yeah, you know, I remember it pretty vividly because, um, you know, it was the 1970s, so they didn't quite know what to do with me. And so I was in special classes with kids, like, you know, with, with Down syndrome and cerebral palsy. And, right. um, you know, so in that regard, it was, you know, fairly traumatic because I thought I'm just as disabled as, as these other folks are. Um, and it took me a long time. You know, I, I couldn't I couldn't read until I was ten. Um, and you know, for a long time, I thought my name was Dot, and that was confusing. <laughs> 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 um, but you know, to um, to your uh, to your sister and my mother's great credit, um, you know, she really sought out whatever experts she could find. And you know, this was 1976, 77, 78, 79. 
And she would drive me out to um, Stanford and to Berkeley for all of these sort of special classes that were really just starting to, um, you know, become standardized at the time where they taught me, you know, how to read, but they also, they, it fixed my double vision and my balance problems and my writing backwards. You know, I, I had the same thing. Um, you know, essentially all of my motor skills existed in reverse. Mm. And, um, you know, it, you're satanic. You know, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it sometimes shows back up when I'm particularly tired or since edibles have become legalized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, it does help if you're going to be writing Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. It turns out it's been very helpful the last 10 years writing about this hitman rabbi. Yeah. Oh, that's um, interesting. I'm 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I was diagnosed uh, for two reasons. One, I couldn't see, and the right. other was the dyslexia, and I was just basically disruptive in class. Same thing, same thing, yeah. Yeah, because you're bored. Right, exactly. We weren't dumb, we were just bored. Right, and so I was, uh, I was sent to the, the principal's office, who wasn't in. But we had <laughs> nurses here in uh, the San Fernando Valley in grammar school. Mm-hmm. And this particular nurse was going to uh, UCLA to get her degree in child psychology. Right. And her professor was visiting. And I came in, and she was busy, so I talked to this professor. And we played games and drew pictures. Till he fixed you up. And have fun. And the next thing I know, my parents are in a conference with everybody, and... um. In Encino, near the park, there was the Sylvan Learning Center. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's where I went. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing to fix the problem. But what they did teach was how to recognize when it's happening. Yes, I remember that, too. So that you can stop and go, okay... Um, which is your, you know, to this day, I can't tell when I'm facing somebody, which is their right or left hand. That's interesting. You know, I have the the same exact problem. I have to constantly look at myself and say, I'm left-handed, so that's that hand over there. (laughs) And then then stare at that other person. So It's so weird. And, you know, I I hardly even think of it anymore because, of course, you know, I'm I'm 49 years old. It's It's just part of who I am at this point. Right. But I had an interesting thing happen a few years ago, which is I, I'm also colorblind. And I got those um, enchroma glasses, which um, allow you to see color for the first time. And it, I was taken all the way back to my childhood of, of feeling like, you know, I didn't see the world in the same way that other people saw it. And how, and how strange and unsettling that was to figure that out. And then when I put on the uh, the enchroma glasses and saw color for the first time, I was like, my entire life <laughs> has been a lie. <laughs> Everything I think is true is not true. Uh, but the, the other cool thing is, you know, my brain started to adapt. And now, you know, I know these different colors. So I know that, oh, well, that is a thing that is purple. So when I see it, I start to make that correction in my mind. Like, that's not blue. That's purple. That's in my mind, I have a memory of what purple looks like without the glasses on. And I start, you know, building some, some different sensory connections. It's a very strange experience. Wow. It sounds like, it's like it sounds being like, an alien. 
It sounds yeah. like you had a similar experience uh, with your family that I did. Uh, oh, yeah, were they all nuts? <laughs> once it was identified what was wrong, and I got some glasses so I could see, I didn't have anyone in my familial life tell me that I was stupid, dumb, or I'd never be anything. Right. What I got was, you're going to sit there until you get it right, and I don't care how hard it is. And we'll do everything we can to help you along the way. Well, you were very lucky. Some people get the crap beat out of they, them. Yeah, well, they, they just get the exact opposite. So it sounds like you had right. the same thing. You had a supportive family that went out and helped you. Yeah, well, you know, the, I, I think the important thing is that as, as broken and test, you know, we're a family that reads mm-hmm. and um, a family that writes, obviously. And so there was never a question that I was not going to read or write. Like, that, that just that wasn't, that wasn't a possibility. No, it's just a given. You're going to read, you're going to write. Yeah, and, you know, and, and part of that's also, you know, sort of the history of Judaism in America. Like, y- you are going to be an intellectual whether you want to be or not. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no matter how stupid you are, you will be yeah. an intellectual. You, you, will, you will be, you will at least consider yourself smarter than everyone else in the room. <laughs> um, you might even consider yourself a globalist for that matter. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm lucky if I'm just a San Fernando Valleyist. <laughs> the big big region between North Hollywood and Woodland Hills. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know what the the one you know what helped me the most. And you might find this bizarre. Um, I had t- terrible trouble reading. It was arduous, painful, and took forever. And so someone suggested I go see, go to one Evelyn Woodhead sped reading course. Oh, the speed reading, mm-hmm. yeah. Where I improved my comprehension yeah. 100%. Uh, I did that uh, four times uh, while I was in grammar school, and that changed everything. Did you send Evelyn Wood a thank you letter written backwards? Uh, no, but um, I was able to get through school because now I could read. And instead of reading it, say, 100 words a minute or 50 words a minute, I could read, you know, the entire uh, weekend newspaper, Sunday newspaper, in an hour. Right. When I lived in Walla Walla, I could do it in 10 minutes. Only 12 pages. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, uh, that helped a lot. Now, being as your brother, being older than you... Nine whole years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was already uh, figuring out how to crank out a bunch of stuff under fake names and, and begin a career. Uh, how did you decide to follow in his uh, rather muddy footsteps? Well, I had to make some important choices first. The first was that I decided I wanted to be cool. Yeah. And that was going to yeah. slow down. I'm sorry, that's life. just not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I decided that I wanted to have friends and have sex. And so, yes, that's two important things. I didn't start writing books at 19 like we did. (laughs) Um, You wanted to to socialize. (laughs) Yeah, I I wanted to socialize. You know, it's, um, I I don't don't think it's necessarily falling in the footsteps as much as it was just sort of ordained. You know, I, I was telling stories, you know, with my toys. You know, before I could read, obviously. Right. Um, you know, I was I was sitting there in my bedroom and telling stories in my mind mm-hmm. with my Donnie and Marie doll. And yeah. You don't want to know the story. And that's a kinky uh, story, uh, I'm that's sure. That, no, that's not a porno film. No. 
Um, she's a little bit country. Yeah, he's a little bit rock and roll. And, uh, he's a little bit um, gay. So, you know, by the time I got to college and was an English major, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to write or be creative in some form or fashion. Um, but I also knew that, um, you know, I wanted to make money. And at the time, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was ready to do that. And so I spent a couple years doing other stuff. You know, I worked in advertising. Um, you know, I went, I went to school. You know, I, I did a, a bunch of stuff. So, Weren't you also you know, writing speeches for Republicans? I, I dabbled in a little freelance writing for a number of different clients across the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, as long um, as the check cleared, you were happy. As long yeah. as the check cleared, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was a time I was writing for this guy who was, uh, I, I, I probably can't even say where he lived. I, there was a non-disclosure agreement. He, he, was in, um, he was in Louisiana, and he was a Republican, and I was writing for him. And, uh, like, you know, the money was good, but, you know, I'd have to lay on my futon and ask myself, <laughs> am, I doing, am I doing wrong for the world? But at the time, I only had a futon, so I decided, well, I could take a little bit more money and get a, get a double bed. Um, so, you know, by the time I was 25 or 26 years old, I was already writing short stories. And, and so I took a, a little bit different path. Because I, I, you know, I, when I was younger, I decided I wanted to be a very serious literary novelist, which is a problem because all I really wanted to do was kill people. And so <laughs> I was killing people, but they were thinking about their mom. You know, yeah. like, oh, I'm sorry I had to kill you. My mom hurt me. Um, and so it really wasn't until the middle of my career, you know, after I'd published four books and I realized I'm not going to be a great literary novelist, but I could probably be a pretty good crime novelist if I, you know, went in that, that direction. And the funny thing was that Lee had said, you know, years before, like, why don't you write a book people want to read without killing themselves afterwards? <laughs> yeah, but my, Michaela Hamilton, the uh, executive editor at Kensington, once said to me, Burrow, you must remember, you're writing for people who like your books, not the yeah. people who don't like them. Well, and you know, you'd mentioned my book, Living Dead Girl, and you know, that book, I was very proud of it. It had lost a bunch of nice awards, but it had sold so poorly mm. because, you know, it's just a super sad, depressing novel. And, um, you know, people liked it because it was well written, but they didn't like it enough to buy it. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you could have given it a better title, it, like Great Expectations. <laughs> yeah. That probably would have done it. And, like, that was the book after which Lee was like, well, hey, you got great reviews for this book, but the reviews revealed how, how horribly depressing and sad <laughs> this is, like, the, the World Trade Center has just collapsed. Do you want people to go read that? <laughs> and I was like, you know, you, you make some fairly valid points. <laughs> like Sullivan's Travels. Yeah, so it took, it took me a while to realize that I was probably better off um, doing what I actually really love to read, which is crime fiction. Um, and so, you know, subsequent to the first four or five books of my career, the next, the next dozen have all been about bad people doing bad things to worse people. Yeah, and people get a kick out of that. Well, now, yeah, it like it. as interesting as the uh, demographics of the economy of the country change, the type of things that the characters that people want to read about changes. And uh, I remember when 
the executive editor of Kensington called me up and said, you know, the economy's changed and um, you've uh, written books where uh, the killers and everything are uh, all blue collar. Well, the economy's bad, so people want to read books where rich people are the bad guys. Right. <laughs> so go find, I was actually told, find one where the people are rich, lots of money, lots of drugs, and you get bonus points if there's a wood chipper. <laughs> Well, I mean, think about it sort of in the history of noir fiction. You know, Dashiell Hammett rises to prominence during, you know, during the Depression uh, because he's writing stories about either rich people getting theirs or about, you know, someone going into a small town and killing everybody, right? <laughs> yeah. You everyone know, needs a hobby. Yeah, everyone needs a hobby, but also, you know, people, people like for entertainment in these times, they like to feel like, Someone can go in and bring order to chaos. Um, you know, they feel powerless in this world. They feel powerless against Donald Trump. All these things. All they want to do is find someone that can dirty Harry a problem for them. Yeah. That's, you know, I, I, I felt guilty. I was watching Unhinged. I don't know if you've watched that movie yet. Uh, I passed by it. And- I, I really enjoyed it. But the, I felt so guilty because I kept identifying with the bad guy. Uh, that would be Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, who I thought was great in that, weighed 850 pounds. But I kept identifying with him. <laughs> you, you know, uh, sir, I, I have to sit next to your imaginary <laughs> uncle every week. And the more I do, the more, the more trepidatious I become. <laughs> it's a common problem. You know, I, I think we're, we're in a unique period of time where identifying with the with the villain is is pretty easy yes <laughs> you know you don't identifying with law enforcement or identifying with the government that's supposed to help you it doesn't seem like a great path no, no. for success these days no that well you can always be pardoned <laughs> right yeah <laughs> i don't i don't want to i don't want to have to dance like roger stone to get all of my sins pardoned it's a it's a nice work if you can get it wouldn't have to try to justify it, though. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, you did something very commercial out of the clear blue of the western sky when you started writing burn notice books. I mean, that was kind yeah. of a sw- switch up for you at that point in your career. Yeah, that, that's essentially the point at which I decided to write commercial crime fiction. Um, you know, most people would sort of dabble in their living rooms and figure out, like, oh, is this pretty good? And the choice I made was, I'm going to dabble and then have, you know, a couple hundred thousand people read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, isn't that true? Um, but, you know, it, it really, it did change the course of my career. And, uh, you know, Matt Nix, who created Burn Notice, is, a, is an old friend of mine. And, um, you know, him giving me the confidence to take this character that he created and do with it what I wanted for as long as I wanted. I, I, I could still be writing Burn Notice if I wanted to. Um, was great, and it, it really was a place for me to learn how to write the kind of stuff that I'm essentially writing right now. And what is the kind of stuff you're essentially writing right now? You know, <laughs> guys, with, guys with guns who solve problems. <laughs> by killing the people? <laughs> by killing people and outsmarting them. They might not be. I don't think I've. I don't think I've ever really written a hero. You know, every everything I've ever written has been about a, a pretty flawed person. Um, the anti-hero. 
an anti-hero for sure. But they end up being, I think, the the least maniacal amongst everyone else in the room. You stack him like cordwood, he's on top. (laughs) I've had this discussion with many friends over the years, how difficult it is to write an anti-hero. You think of uh, Tom Hanks in Road to Perdition. Right. Uh, uh, Anti-heroes like that. They have to have... Bad guys that aren't, that are... They have to have a redeeming aspect. How about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance yeah, Kid? Yeah, like, good man, one, Matt. Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the key is, it's, it's not that you have to give them a redeemable quality that is obvious in, in your writing of that person, but you have to give the readers someone who loves them, someone else who cares about them. And so by giving the reader someone else who cares about that character, you say to yourself, as a reader... Oh, well, there must be something good in that person. Someone else loves them. Therefore, there must be something empathetic or caring or giving about that person that, that I can get into myself. That's why and the that's author gave my... Hitler Eva Braun. Oh, exactly. <laughs> it's, why, it's why Trump got his seven-foot-nine son, Baron. Um, <laughs> you know, it, and it's, it's a trick, right? You know, it's a trick we writers do, but I think it's what has allowed me to write these Rabbi Hitman book um, and do it successfully because it's an absurd conceit but you you identify with this guy because he's got a wife and kids that he's trying to get back to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so l- l- let us go there. I've been wanting, to, I wanted to talk about this. Okay, we're Jewish but not necessarily religious. Right. Weekend Jews, maybe. Blood oh, Jews. Jews. <laughs> so, so Man- here you are. Man- corn beef yeah, so here you are creating a character who hides behind being a rabbi, which you know nothing about. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> well, <laughs> how'd you pull that one off, Todd? <laughs> you know, the, the thing is that I, um, I devoted myself while writing this character to learning what he would learn. And so over the course of writing three, and now I'm into the fourth book that I'm writing, plus, you know, some other stuff that I've written about him, I'm reading the Torah and the Talmud and the Midrash and the books on Jewish eschatology and, you know, the Burning Bush and the Holocaust by Martin Gilbert and, you know, modernity and the Holocaust. I'm reading all of those books at the same time that my character is. You know, I'm, I'm learning the faith at the same rate that he is. But the fact of the matter, too, is that, you know, when I started to write him, um, I was having, a, you know, a, a crisis of self. You know, um, my mom had died. My dad was dead. Uh, my grandparents, both parents, were dead. Um, and you suddenly look at the family tree and realize that you're not at the bottom of it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you start to reckon with how you got there. You know, like, yeah. how, how, did I get, how did I get to be a Jew that lived, you know? Um, you know, the, the, our borough, my namesake, uh, Bar, they killed all the Jews in Bar Twice. <laughs> how, how did you slip through the you slip through the cracks? How did we get out of there? Yeah, they, they killed them all in 1919, and they went back and killed them all again in 1942. 
Um, how did we get out of that? How did we survive that? Why did we get this chance? Um, and so I started to read. I started to, to want to know, you know, who I am. And so while I don't necessarily believe in the religion, I obviously believe in the culture, and I believe in a lot of the spirituality. Um, and, you know, the fact is, if my last name were O'Brien, I couldn't write these books. That's right. You'd be writing, uh, you know, the Father Brown mysteries or something. Yeah, I mean, the, the weird thing is that these books have taken me into a lot of synagogues. Um, and, you know, the books keep getting picked up by the Jewish Federation for their book clubs, and I go and I talk to these folks. And I always ask the rabbi, would I be here if my last name were O'Sullivan? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is no. No, of course not. <laughs> I assume you've seen the movie Gentleman's Agreement, Gregory Peck. I have not. Well, you should. (laughs) It's about a journalist who was given an assignment to write a a series about anti-Semitism in America. And Mm -hmm. he decides instead of doing the same old thing, you know, uh, statistics, blah, 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 he'll pretend he's Jewish and see what happens. He'll, uh, That's a great idea. Uh, yes, yeah, wait till you see what happens. He'll you know, try to make reservations at various hotels or try to join various country clubs. And, you know, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Greenberg. We're, we're all full up. We said, well, we're restricted. We don't take Jews here. Uh, uh, and it's, and it's, it's a fascinating thing, you know, like if, if I were Nando Sullivan and I wrote this book, they'd be protesting my book. They wouldn't be celebrating. Yes. How do you anti-Semite? Yeah. But the thing is about so, that movie is that it was made a long time ago, but you watch it today and you go, God, not much has really changed. No. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the long answer to the short question, which is that I, I became interested and my, in, like, you know, so let me back up and also say that I had written a short story with this character in 2009. And I didn't, Gangsterland, the novel didn't come out until 2014. Because part of it was that I didn't know enough Judaism to write the book. <laughs> That's right. You have to do a little so, research. Yeah, it took, me, it took me three years of reading before I started to write the book in 2012 and felt comfortable doing it. Well, that makes perfect sense. You got to write what you know. <laughs> if you don't know well, it, no. I mean, I, I don't. I don't agree with that. I, I, I always come from the point of writing what I want to discover. You know, yes, what I very know good, about. very good. I like that. Can I write that down? <laughs> yeah, if I wrote what I knew, I'd just write about you know a frumpy middle-aged <laughs> guy playing video games all day long. Yeah, like the groupies we get. <laughs> 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 Don't authors have groupies? Yeah, they look like Jessica Fletcher. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, today I someone cloned my account on Facebook Uh-oh. and uh, is using photos of me and photos of my dog. And someone did say maybe he's just a super fan. And I was like, well, it's not the weirdest thing a super fan would have done. <laughs> <laughs> I I received a friend request from Burl Bearer, my name, my spelling. In Nigeria, they said, excuse yeah. me, my name is my copyright. I'm an author. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this gentleman's in Papua New Guinea, where I, my books have not yet reached. <laughs> <laughs> and more is the pity. 
That's <laughs> like my friend uh, Mia Mosinzia, who uh, is in Pakistan. He is very popular in Russia, Australia, England, and America, primarily with women. In Pakistan, he gets on TV a lot because he's famous for being famous. But they don't, I don't even know if they can buy his books there. <laughs> You're probably breaking some law speaking his name. Yeah, probably. Although I found out there's like three people on Facebook with his name who aren't him or aren't he, whichever is correct. <laughs> and that's another thing. I got a, a text message from Travis Webb, who's another journalist, writer, author, person. And he's he's using grammatical terms. So you're doing this kind of sentence and Leslie Charteris uses this kind of sentence, but if you use this kind of sentence, merge with this type of sentence, and I go, what the hell is he talking about? And I had to go on and do a search on these terms, these grammatical terms. I didn't know these terms. I didn't know what he was talking about. And I'm a published author, right? I felt embarrassed. How, how did I get well, away with didn't have the classical English. I didn't have the education, education to know this stuff. Our, I guess. Right. Right. You should, have, you should have asked your nephew, the, the educated man. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Where so, was uh, I? Did you, ask, did you ask your brother for any advice when you decided you wanted to be a writer? Um, yeah. You know, you don't ever have to ask Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what you're asking. He just likes to offer. May I have the steam off your cold cup of coffee? Yeah, the nice thing about Lee is that he's always willing to tell you how to live your life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, in fact, I did. Um, because, you know, I had seen um, the ups and downs in his career. You know, he started out as a journalist. Well, he started out as a, as a novelist, became a journalist, became a screenwriter, went back to books, went back to TV. Like, you know, he went back and forth an awful lot. And so by the time I was really, you know, becoming successful. So after my first book came out in, um, when I was 29, uh, which is my God, it was 21 years ago at this point. Wow. Um, you know, I basically said to him, like, how do I make sure I don't ever have to go back to having a real job? Yeah. And, um, he, he was like, look, you got to become good at a lot of different stuff. You know, don't just be a novelist, be, do the things that you enjoy, you know? So at the time I wasn't interested in being a screenwriter, um, but he was like, you know, you want to teach, you should become a professor. If you like to do book reviews, you should become a critic. You know, if you like to write essays, you should write essays. And I really do love to teach and, and had wanted to teach. And so I became, um, I became a professor, but I also became a book critic and I became an essayist and all these things end up being part of a, a writing career. You know, the, the, it turns out being a professor ended up with me having another day job, which is that I created and founded the, one of the largest graduate schools in creative writing and writing for the performance arts in the country. Yay. But it, does, it doesn't feel like a job because it's what I'm passionate about. Um, and, you know, maybe I would have been slightly more prolific, so I've put out 15 books in 20 years, uh, if I wasn't also doing this other thing, but it's all I've ever wanted to do is go out and, and give back and, and teach and, and talk about writing. Um, and so that was really great advice. And it's, it has essentially sustained me 
for the ups and downs of my own career, too. You know, some books sell well, some books don't. And it's amazing that sometimes a book will get great reviews and people don't buy it. Yeah. I haven't figured that one out. (laughs) I'm hoping that's not happening. It happened to me. (laughs) I have a book that will remain nameless that has wonderful reviews internationally. And sales? No. Um, I don't find that difficult to to, uh, to comprehend. It happens in every genre. Yeah. I mean, if you have, you know, a fabulous story to tell and and you make a movie, and the movie is Academy Award caliber, it still has to appeal to the person with the money to buy, wants to buy a ticket. Right. And if the material... doesn't always equal quality. You know, if the material... Even if the material warrants viewing, it still has to appeal. And if it doesn't appeal, and it's a crapshoot, you know, whether or not it's going to catch on with the public. Also, if you're writing outside your typical genre, I am best known for true crime. Anything I write outside of true crime usually doesn't do as well, even if it gets great reviews. So, Well, I I thought your erotica was well done. Yeah, well, I thought so, too. (laughs) But that was mostly on Pal Talk. (laughs) <laughs> your your only fans account for your erotica, I think. Yeah, I said, but on Chatterbait, I have two hundred twenty-five followers. <laughs> None of them have any tokens. Damn it! To our audience, <laughs> now, those any of you people have tokens? <laughs> that made me the token Jew on Chatterbait. Oh God! Did bump? <laughs> Oh. Right, your screen name for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, my beloved, uh, your beloved Auntie Britt, she got the, uh, the URL, uh, what was it, uh, gorgeousshiksa.com. Oh, God. <laughs> that's a, that's a, non, a crazy, uh, non-Jewish woman. Yeah. The Shiksa. That is, that's more about my lovely Auntie Britt that I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but Yiddish is required. <laughs> yeah, Yiddish is required. It's like uh, Blazing Saddles when the Indians come upon the... Uh, <laughs> Blossom game! <laughs> when the... Uh, Abika Zint, that's a good Yeah, when the Indians come upon the, uh, the little wagon <laughs> train, and, you go, and it's Mel Brooks is the Indian, he's got Hebrew on his headdress. Yes. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> Which I thought, that's unusual. Uh, that's funny. Uh, so um, you you seem to uh, like to write about uh, organized crime in your neck of the woods. Yeah, is that dangerous? I don't know. <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> you know the the Palm Springs gangsters are mostly retired, um, and when when mom you know moved. They didn't stay around. <laughs> <laughs> they mostly stayed in Palm Springs to date my mom. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the organ, organized crime is everywhere, of course. Um, it just takes on different guises now. You know, you there's, there's not much difference between, you know, the Bonanno crime family and, you know, the Mexican mafia other than, um, the, you know, people's lack of desire to uh, engage with, people outside their own race. Um, you know, the organized crime element in America is just as profound as it's ever been, just as organized and just as lucrative. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the sort of nexus between sort of classic mafia 
Native American gangs and crimes, uh, Los Angeles, and then other inner city street gangs. They're all operating now from the same pool of Mexican cartel cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm interested in all that, but I'm also primarily interested in the, the choices people make to go into that life. Um, and the, the mundane nature of their, their daily lives. Where I live in, um, outside of Palm Springs, I live in uh, the city of Indio, and I live in a big gated community on a lake and a golf course, it's lovely, and one mile to uh, the west of us is the actual home base of the Mexican Mafia, and it's, it's literally a mile away, so if you go to the grocery store, those dudes are in there buying groceries and buying wool light and getting to space and they're chasing after their kids and, you know, they got face tattoos and all that shit, but they're, they're at Target just like you because it's Tuesday and they're out of soap, you know? Yeah. And so I'm fascinated by the openness of organized crime now. The, well, that's the mundane comment. The mundane nature of it and, um, and it's, it's common intersection with everyday people. Well, interesting. Oh, excuse me. So there was a website that teaches or has like classes in economics, and you're given problems to solve. And the big problem they wanted to solve one semester, as you're a teacher, was that 60% of the economy of Russia is the Russian mob. Mm-hmm. The more the Russian mob is involved, the worse the economy is. And the worse the economy is, the more people join the Russian mob. So they have this economic problem. How do you increase the profits of the economy and the Russian mob without it destroying itself in the process? I don't know who came up with the solution, but I thought it was a fascinating assignment. Well, it just becomes, the answer is that the Russian mob becomes the the Russian government. Yes, <laughs> and they, there you go. They and and they aren't already? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's essentially what Putin, what Putin decided was, well, I'm not, I'm not going to stop the Russian mob. I'm going to use my KGB skills to become the head mobster. Yeah. Um, because you know, if it's sixty percent, if it was sixty percent five years ago, it must be at least seventy-five percent now. Well, they've diversified into the greater DC area. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I found uh, fascinating about the Palm Springs area that there was a time period where it was considered an open city. Yeah, it still is. It still is. And if you don't know what that means, uh, if you watched any of the John Wick movies, the hotels were safe, ha- safe havens where, you know, you weren't allowed to do anything there. And that's what an open city is. Once you're there, you're essentially safe. And they can't arrest you right. for stuff? No, no, it's the mob. The mob won't kill you. Yeah, the mob won't kill you for doing stuff here. But if you step out of Palm Springs, you got a problem. So, for instance... There was a, a land developer whose name all of a sudden escaped me, but he was known as Mr. Palm Springs. Yeah, he did. Uh, um, he did the uh, the swamp there. Uh, yeah, yeah. He he developed the Salton Sea. The Salton Sea. And <laughs> he he you know he screwed over the Chicago families, the New York families, the LA families. He you know he it was a problem, and he was from Chicago himself, but he didn't leave Palm Springs for forty years. 
and <coughs> excuse me, his mom died, and so he flew out to Evanston, where his mom was living, goes to her funeral, steps out of his house, they blow up the house around him. <laughs> you know, and, and like, don't leave. <laughs> don't, don't leave. Don't leave. Whatever you do, don't leave. They say it's safe here, it's safe here, not anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a rich history of, um, you know, of Palm Springs being an open city because, you know, for a long time it was Chicago gangsters were out here, but then the New York crime families were out here. And then, uh, you know, I went to school with all their kids, the Zangaris and the Bananos and all these, all these people. And, um, you know, they, they tried to get themselves into the Indian gaming, mm-hmm. which worked for a little while, but the... The uh, the tribes realized, well, we don't need to get into bed with the five families. We can we can get into bed with ourselves. <laughs> with we, we don't need anyone else to help us. We have our own police force. That's right. We don't need these guys coming in. Um, so you see, like, at the beginning of the, the casino and the bingo room boom in the, the tribal areas in Southern California, but specifically in Palm Springs, you see... a, a the initial seed money coming from organized crime, Italian organized crime, and then very quickly then getting bought out and, and snitched on and doing time. <laughs> and doing time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, whoa, whoa. So all, and all that stuff was happening around me when I was a kid living out here, and you know, I made the joke about my mom, but the fact of the matter is, is that as Russian attacks, my mother had an affinity for low-level compost. <laughs> you know, like if, if you if you had a guy who drove you around with three fingers, my mom wanted to go to dinner with you. <laughs> hey, well, there's all this music going on. I don't know what it means, but it must mean that either we're out of time or the mob is after us. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Todd Goldberg, buy all of his books when you're buying mine. Hey, Pearl, what's next? Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live from the Lights of Lounge. But Allen, ready? Yeah,